And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 12, 2022. David Barman is owner of Epilogue LLC, a small-scale sawmill business just south of Portland, Oregon. He co-owned Fiddlehead LLC, a Portland, Oregon-based landscape construction company for 15 years. David has milled hundreds of thousands of board feet of lumber and installed countless edible landscapes and rain gardens in the Portland area. David has been a powerful advocate for the urban lumber movement over the last decade. He has successfully leveraged private industry, nonprofit organizations, and government to push for transformational changes in the urban forestry system. In addition to his hands-on experience procuring, milling, and creating value-added products from urban lumber, he is currently working on his first book, Wood from the City, The Urban Lumber Handbook. David was named Sustainable Business Oregon's Emerging Leader in 2013. And in 2015, David helped pass legislation through the state of Oregon to fund the world's first urban lumber tree planting feasibility study. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, David. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. We're anxious to hear your story about urban wood in Oregon. Urban wood is becoming a buzzword for the country. And people like yourself are the leaders in that. And we want to hear about your story and how you wound up getting to do what you're doing. So I'll back up a little bit and I'll give you kind of just like a brief story about how I kind of went down this crazy rabbit hole. So in a former career, I was a flight attendant for United, was a Japanese speaker, traveled quite a bit. Um, 9-11 hit, I got interested in economics and politics. I got interested in resources and how we get the things we need and how that affects our lives economically, socially. And, and I, I do believe that plants and minerals are at the core of everything that we do in the world or the, what we need. So if you're thinking about economics, or uh, which can lead to conflict, it can lead to good things, it can lead to trade, it leads to so many different aspects of our life, it really boils down to plants and minerals or plants and rocks. So I started working for a landscape contractor. I got really excited about permaculture. For people that don't know what that is, it's kind of like an integrated system for people and the earth. And I started doing some side jobs and then I decided to work with my coworker and start working together on our own. And we found a developer that was flipping a house and he had done what I call a control alt delete to the landscape, but it was owned by an older woman that had passed away. And he cleared the lot because it was just so overgrown and crazy. And so he hired us to put in a, a new landscape. So we were young and hungry to do stonework and landscape construction. And on this job in the corner, there was a log laying back there. And I didn't think too much about it at all. And I asked him one day, the, the owner of the property one day, hey, when are you going to cut that thing and get it, get it out of here? We need to grade back there. And he said, that's not firewood. That's furniture, baby. That's a cherry log. And I, I was like, sure, whatever. Well, it needs to go away, so we can't have it there. And a few days later, this guy showed up, the truck and a winch, and he winched it out of the yard. And I didn't think too much about it. And then he came back for one final look around, and I was like, what are you, you going to do with that? And he's like, well, I just bought this bandsaw mill thing. I was didn't make any sense to me. And said, I'm going to mill it in my driveway, and I'm going to turn it into furniture. And I just kind of had this epiphany, like, wow, like, 
this is a resource. And I, I remember almost doing a 360 in the backyard and looking off at the distance and seeing a Doug fir tree. I'm like, that's for framing lower. I can see a western red cedar. That's for decking. This is cherry. This is for furniture. And I just was like, I got to know about this. I need your number. I want it. Look, can I see how this works? And at the time, I was really excited about urban agriculture and growing food in the city. I was really excited about stormwater projects and planting with native plants and digging bioswales and rain gardens and people's yards. And that was really the thing of the time. And I, I just thought, wow, if we can grow food in the city, why can't we grow lumber in the city? And of course, that was in 2007, so I've been at it for a while now. And it's been quite a journey to try and answer that question. Can we grow wood in the city? Are, what are we doing today? And what could we do differently in the future? And I'm really excited to talk with plant people. A lot of the folks that I talk to tend to be more on the wood side. And I come to this whole thing as a botany and plant and natural sciences person. I was really into ornithology as a kid. I was out with my scope and my dog out in the creek behind my house every day watching birds growing up. And so I really have a big passion for that. It's interesting to see how people kind of cleave either to the wood side or to the plant side. And I feel like I'm pretty integrated where I, I look at it as the holistic system and not, not either or. So I, I hope that I can impart that for your listeners today, because I think sometimes people hear the word lumber. And if you're a wood person, that's exciting. And if you're a plant person, their immediate reaction is like, well, that has to be very specific incidences where I would feel comfortable with that or why would you cut down something that's healthy or good? And so I, hopefully we can kind of untangle some of the philosophies around that or what, what position I've come to and maybe get people to think outside the box about that a little bit. That's interesting because uh, here in the city of Philadelphia, the only tree that would be cut down would be something that would be either it needs the right of way is needed or power line, for example, um, or the tree is in declining health, what they classify as the death spiral. And at that point, it, when it's taken down, it's looked at. And a lot of times these trees are actually very desirable because they might have spalting in them. Um, there might be some other characteristics that really give it a, a spin that you couldn't get with a regular lumbered tree. So that kind of has taken off. And there is an organization which we had on earlier, the Urban Wood Network, which our company belongs to. And, you know, they don't intentionally take down trees. They take them down when they need to come down, but then it goes right into the milling process. And I think that that is a really interesting way of getting resources without having to put things into the uh, dumping stream, if you will. But at the same time, it actually reduces the timber that's needed from the farming end of things. And in your case, you're looking at talking about farming trees within the city limits, which is a different type of a wood harvesting. And I think that both of them have a relevance within our society today because of, of the resources and in the future. Yeah, that's that, those are really good points. So I, I would describe urban lumber as the system. There's an urban lumber system of today, and there's an urban lumber system of the future that I'm advocating for that doesn't really exist anywhere that I know of. So the urban lumber system of today is trees are removed in, in and around urban areas because of disease, because of development, or because of hazard situations. So the tree fell over in an ice storm or a snowstorm, or it needs to go away because they're putting in a house. And that system of today, the cool thing, like you mentioned, is there's a lot of really interesting wood. There's a lot of bigger, older trees potentially that might be removed in a non-forest land. So there might be a 200-year-old tree in the city of Philadelphia that has really great wood in it uh, that gets removed. Like you said, there's character-grade wood. There's a lot of wood that might have more specialty wood applications that maybe in industrial forestry today might be of less interest. The estimate from the 90s from the U.S. Forest Service was that there's 4 billion board feet of potential lumber from urban trees is destroyed every year in North America. And I think the folks at Carbon Cambium, they're doing a lot of interesting work around research on urban lumber, trying to help create a, a better system. I use Trace, their software, in order to track all of my lumber inventory. So they're doing some really interesting things. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you have to fact check me on this, I think 
that their founder, Ben, said that there's 10 billion board feet of potential numbers thrown away. So, and that those numbers are basically going off of estimates about how much green residue is removed from yards, how much of that is as trees, and then like kind of guessing the percentage of that is lumber quality material. Now that's really tough to say exactly, but I, I like to say that there's billions of dollars of potential lumber. Now, the plus side is there's a lot of material out there. There's a lot of material that needs to go away. An arborist is being hired to remove a tree because it needs to go for a variety of reasons. And there's nothing that you can do to stop that. And they're often grateful to have a home for the wood because I think most people are, don't want to firewood, a nice saw log. I mean, I think most people realize that that's a resource, but also it's big and heavy. And if they have a way to make it go away and it's less cutting and less work, then they're probably, their ears are going to perk up and be interested in that. In that. I think we'll get more to that in a minute about just urban lumber today, because I think that's where most people's conversations are going to be because they're, they're trying to solve an immediate problem. But I'll just segue briefly and say that the problems with today are there's no plan. If you plant a tree, no one's thinking about what's going to happen to that tree. So in 50 or 80 years or 100 years or 200 years, at some point, every tree in every city, everywhere in the world will die. It will need to go away. And the wood from that tree will need to be dealt with. And it's heavy. So that could be 20 tons of weight in a large form tree. So what are we going to do with that? So today, most of the time, it's chopped up it's mulched because there's no plan. So what I'm advocating for is a systematic way where we can plant, maintain, and harvest trees in the future at scale. And I think for some people that sounds a little scary, but the, the good news is urban forestry is very expensive. And if we do things in a more efficient way, that means we have a way to pay for it, which to me gets back to that question of economics and resources that I kind of touched on early is how do we give people an incentive to plant more trees? Well, if you have something that goes from being a liability on the property to an asset of the property, suddenly a lot of people and people who maybe wouldn't normally even be interested in trees might be like, hey, I've got some land there or maybe a municipality or along the freeway, maybe near my house, there's, I don't know, you could plant hundreds of thousands of trees around the Portland area. And there's lots of space where you could be managing that forest and growing high value timber, but at the same time, do it in a way where it's not clear cutting and you could have larger pocket forests where we're getting material, which civilization needs, whether we like that answer or not, woods coming from somewhere. Um, but anyway, I, I wanted to kind of juxtaposition those two different systems. I was going to say that Kind of looking backward too, in that in Europe, when they clear cut all their trees and they didn't have anything, they learned how to pollard. And pollarding created the wood that was needed for the everyday materials, such as spindles on staircases and chairs. And, and then they would get the bigger stuff further away if they could find it, or they would rehab something. Right now, we're not even rehabbing furniture, for example which is made out of wood and we're just putting it into the into the waste stream. If we repurposed a lot of the stuff that we have and we repurposed the wood that we have, as you're saying, we can actually find a new paradigm to reduce overall waste and also increase the value of a tree within an urban area. And more recently, the, the first person, I think it was Dr. Ulrich, who actually valued a tree because of human health. Now everyone's, but everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and trying to value trees to make it part of the infrastructure of any community so that when it becomes infrastructure, we now pay attention to it and we look at the value of it. There are other people like you out there, but the dots have not been connected. And a person like you is trying to make the connection with others who may be thinking on the same wavelength. And am I correct in that? I think the movement right now is really like the urban lumber movement, which, I, you know, back back when I kind of discovered this cherry log thing, like I didn't, there was no words, there was no website, there was no, there was, it's, it's been, I feel like it's mirroring a lot of the, the urban forestry movement. I think most people are thinking like, well, we're wasting this, we should, we should use it. And I think that's, Really good. I didn't realize you interviewed folks from the Urban Wood Network. I'm now the chair of the of the Oregon chapter. Yay! So David, I'm an arborist, kind of in my first year of retirement, and I've had a long association with a good size husband and wife owned tree company in the Philadelphia suburbs. 
And one of my wake-ups actually leading up to getting together with Eva for the podcast was two crane trucks and their daily return to the yard at the end of the day and offloading sizable wood and very quickly creating a mountain oh, yeah. uh, neatly stacked and then subbing it out to a triaxle logger guy who would come and empty it, right? Pick up the wood, haul it out. And obviously I know the contractor, a great guy, and he would lament. He said, no one wants this wood and kind of indicated he's always been, you know, slightly secretive. I respect that about where the wood was going, but I've kind of figured out that he was heading like 20, 30 miles out of the city to open space, uh, contracting with a farmer or, or some landowner and just offloading it there. So as I talked that one through, I realized, okay, yeah, at least it's, you know, returning to the earth in some fashion. But I, the company also did buy a bandsaw. And my questions here are kind of at the practical standpoint. And, and as a business person, I'm also thinking, hey, create the market and you'll have no problem getting rid of this wood. The practical question is, wouldn't it be great if private tree care companies knew that they could buy that bandsaw and had almost like a template so that they could hit the ground running in terms of reaching out to your buyers, which I think a lot of time there's going to be the craftsperson, the small contractor that wants to bring in a, a sweet piece of cherry or framing wood from a poplar tree, you know? The company I've been with, when they first got it, it was like very exciting. Everyone wanted to learn how to do it. And now the machine is kind of languished, you know, because they'd cut cool planks of wood, but they weren't, didn't have anyone knocking on the door and said, I want to buy that piece of uh, walnut. If there was like a universal template that commercial arborists could grab onto, I think that might expedite it and, and make it a no-brainer for like, yeah, this is, this is a great product and I want to use it for my client in downtown Philadelphia. Sure. So I can speak to that. I started milling wood eight years ago. I started a business called Eplog LLC. So I had Fiddlehead was my landscape construction company. My business partner still owns that. Now I own the sawmill business. So when I started out, I, I, I milled slabs. I got the logs from tree removals around the Portland area and I milled slabs. And I did milled a lot of slabs, probably 12 to 1500 slabs. That's a real popular thing to do with folks. That was a pretty big boondoggle for me. I lost a lot of money. I was too stubborn to quit. Bought a, a all hydraulic wood miser band. So I have a LX 450 for the, the all the gear gearhead nerds that are listening. And thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, and I started milling more dimensional hardwood lumber. Some of my wood at this point, I would say, comes from like sub suburban areas, or maybe I did get a lot of Oregon white oak from a land clearing for a hazelnut orchard. It's about 10 minutes from my property, and that's where I really learned how to saw lumber. I milled about 80,000 board feet out of that. I just milled a log truck load of fire salvage for, for a, a state of Oregon project. Some of the stuff I mill now doesn't always come from an urban environment, but a lot of it might be like there's a house and they thin some trees around it and they made up a log truck load of it and I can buy that. I, I get walnut that I work with another mill on and a lot of that comes from urban environment. I just got like a camphor tree, which is real rare around here, but it was hmm. in Chinese gardens in downtown. So I was like, well, that sounds weird. Every now and then I'll do something that I know is probably unprofitable, but seems kind of just kind of fun and interesting. I'll allow myself to do something like that. But to back up a little bit and answer your question about there's all of these logs. How could we better use this? And is there an economic opportunity? Who is that for? Obviously, arborists have logs because they're taking down trees. They don't have to buy that. They're charging for the removal. And as you lamented, you're like, well, where, where, this is all going away. I would say there's a great opportunity if you have the bandwidth and interest to purchase a mill, have some, if you probably already have some trucks, hopefully you have like some heavy equipment, a skid steer, a forklift's really important. So having a mill by itself isn't a thing. Having uh, logs by itself isn't a thing. And so I would mention that it's a different business. Yeah. So just the same as a lot of people have a mill and then they make furniture. Making furniture and having a sawmill business are separate businesses. They're related, right? From the log all the way through to a finished product. When I started, I thought we were going to build slab tables. And the amount of money you need to spend in order to get 
from a log all the way through is pretty substantial. So if you don't have several thousand feet of shop space where you can be working on that, it's going to be tough. So if you're going to have a business that's producing more than a handful of logs a year with a chainsaw mill, that'd be the cheapest way to go. You could spend thirty to $50,000 in the blink of an eye. Probably, you know, you want a budget for a real business that's producing, you know, I probably produce about 10,000, five to 10,000 board feet of lumber every month now. And that's a half a million dollar business on a shoestring budget. You know, I built my own 2,000 square foot mill building. I milled a couple log truckloads of Doug Fern, made a six inch thick floor. I have a greenhouse roof. I'm at the back of a plant nursery that I lease space from. So I hire the guys that work there to put a, a greenhouse roof on my building. I spent 10, 15 grand building that. But if I was going to go actually have a 2,000 square foot building, that's expensive. And in some parts of the country, what I have wouldn't work. We have pretty mild weather here. We don't have tornadoes. We don't have hurricanes. So I would say just because you have a resource doesn't mean that's for you. And I think that took me a long time to understand that. Well, in terms of the investment of equipment, do you handle the kiln work? Do you handle drying the wood for your clients? I have a couple of people that dry wood for me. I'm pretty lucky that I found some folks. One caveat too that I that I that I'd like to say is that depending where you are in the world, you will have a different set of resources available to you. I have an industrial kiln that will dry wood for me and a couple of other places that will do small batches and medium-sized batches of wood. I personally chose not to buy a kiln right away and sub that out because that is a whole other part of the process. Now, I will have a kiln probably in the next 12 months because it's getting to that point where I need to have something on site. But also, if you let the wood air dry long enough, you can take it to a bigger kiln and they can dry it and it, it becomes affordable. So I'll leave it at that. But, but I think, as you probably know, as a business owner, you can't do everything. And if you try and do everything, you're, business, you're going to go out of business death by a thousand paper cuts. So you want to do what you do well. You want to have repeatable processes. You want people to be able to call you about the thing that you want to do. You want to be able to say, yes, I can do that. You want to do it. And then you want to be able to generate revenue from that service. And then you want to be able to do it again. If you can't do that, then you just have a hobby and you have a lot of wild enthusiasm. And as someone who's naturally an extroverted dreamer, I've done that. And it's not the outcomes. was not very fun. The idea of having a template and, and having a template to get to where you are. Say, for example, there's a group of people in a co-op that decide that they're, they're each going to take a separate section of that process. And that's a, the, the business on a large scale is the co-op. But each person does a specific thing within that context. Could that work to deliver the type of lumber that you want and that brings in the dollars for the co-op to have it to share with their members? Is that something that can be done? Is that a, a model that could be created? Or are there other types of models that you could suggest that cities, towns, wherever, that somebody might not have everything, but then they would ship things to another city next door? Something like that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would back up and just say, if you want to do this and you bought a mill and you have you have the ability to make something and you know, a spouse or a partner or lack of finances or whatever doesn't allow you to buy to spend a million dollars, right? You know, like, you're like, but hey, I could spend ten grand and get this mill and I could do something. Can somebody else? The reality is, is there's lots of people already doing things that doesn't have to be a co-op. It doesn't have to be an official process. I think sometimes we want to make it all neat and tidy and. Really, the reality is what I've learned is like I know a whole bunch of people and you build your network over time and different people help me with different things. I'm friendly with other mills that I share some resources with. Maybe there's logs I don't want, but I know somebody else that wants them. And we don't have an official agreement or partnership. We just work together. And I think a lot of people from outside think business is all about competition. But really, in the reality, like business is about collaboration or good business. And even in industrial forestry, like I know folks in that world, and they work with other companies that are technically competitors to share information, to work together on things. So there is competition, but there's also collaboration. And that can be as simple as just using Google, getting on Instagram and Facebook and just looking around and seeing it somebody else is doing something similar. So I think sometimes we overthink that a little bit. I think in the future, could there be a co-op where there's something really official? 
Could there be a log sort yard where maybe that's run through a municipality or municipality helps fund that with the larger business where people can bring in logs and then logs can be sorted and graded? So I'll back up a little bit here and just talk a little bit about the process and we can go through a few steps and then I'll try and identify some opportunities and maybe some things that aren't going very well. So the first thing is there is an arborist. They've got a bid, they get the job, we're going to remove this tree and we're going to make it go away. And let's say that this is a nice beech tree or a sycamore or some kind of hardwood tree, or maybe it's like a really nice 36-inch diameter western red cedar. So they want to find a home for that. And maybe they have a trailer they can put those logs on and load it and they can drive it somewhere, or maybe they don't and they just want to see if somebody will come get it. So they would find someone like me when I was smaller, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll come over there with a winch and a trailer, and I will winch that onto the back of a trailer, and I will drive away with it. Of course, the amount of wood you're going to get and the amount of time you're going to spend is going to be a lot. But the arborist could be doing that internally because they bought a bill, or they could find somebody that wants that log. So a lot of people call me and say, do you want to buy my tree? The caveat to that is, if a tree is standing, you don't know what's inside of it until you can look at the ends of the log. Something might look sound and be great and end up being rotten and hollow. In the middle, also single tree removals, a lot of times the material you're going to get, the amount of lumber is less. I do try to get down to like 12-inch logs. At this point, I try to use all of the wood from the tree. A lot of people think you just want the trunk and then they firewood all the leaders. I had some people recently firewood up all the really nice quality black walnut leaders on a log. And I'm like, that cost you two to $500 in lost revenue that I would have paid you for that. And that was the wood that I'm personally more interested in at this point because of the way my business functions. So it's important to know that if there's nice straight logs in a tree, it doesn't just have to be from the bottom, the bottom truck. But that's the first step in this urban lumber thing, whether they're taking out 10 trees at a park or clearing 40 trees for a land clearing project because they're putting in new houses, or it's one nice 40-inch diameter elm tree from a neighborhood that's being removed. So you're willing to give any tree a chance, which is great, be it elm or sycamore, American Beach, they all kind of have a reputation of being difficult. But it sounds like as we move forward with these initiatives, there's a place for all of our trees potentially in the marketplace. Yeah. So a couple of things to think about in an area you're in is like, what can you get consistently? And also like as a sawmill, the more species of wood you mill, the less profitable you're going to be. So sometimes at some point, if, if you only have a hundred board feet of one thing, like a small stack of boards of this and a small stack of that, people can't come back and get the same thing. So if you want to sell lumber to furniture shops and you want to have it repeatable, you're better off sticking with a couple of species. So for me at this point, I mill Oregon white oak, I mill black walnut, I mill American elm. I'll do some maple, a couple of things that pop up, but really walnut and oak are the things that I feel like I have the most, that I'm getting the most consistently. But I do like sycamore. It's really great. Some woods can be more unstable. They can be more fickle. You can mill things a little thicker. You can, there's ways around that. And yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to try and build products. And again, it depends on where, where you are on the East Coast. It's a totally different animal back there than it is out here. In Oregon, Doug fir, cedar, hemlock, those trees rule the forestry system here. And a short log for a log truck here is 25 feet on a self-loader. On the mm. East Coast, you can move short logs because they can bunk an eight-foot log. They can bunk things that are shorter and they can take it somewhere and find a market for it. And so what that means is that if there's a lot of wood and I want to have it, the ability to find somebody with a, a smaller log truck to move wood in mass to me gets more complicated. So if you have space, you can accumulate a bunch of one species until you have enough and then mill it. And maybe it's not something that you have is consistently, but it's something that you can mill here and there and you can have a small amount of it and kind of target a few people that you think would be interested in using that. But if you have 40 species of trees, you know, or 20, I think I've probably milled over 20 species of wood. You want to have a few that are your thing that you do so people can come back and get it. And you also want to think about what is the product that you're offering, right? The next step is you've got these logs from all these removals. I buck all my logs to 8, 10, and 12-foot lengths with 6 inches of trim. I'm pretty fastidious about that. 
because you want to sticker and stack all the lumber with little boards between them called stickers that keep spaces right. for airflow. Yeah. And if your logs are all different lengths, then you can't make good stacks and you're going to have more warping and cupping in your stacks of wood. So it's really important to have uniformity. So I try to make all of my logs those lengths. So I trim everything. So if you're trying to do just willy-nilly whatever, there's a lot less people. Again, if you're going to cut only slabs, you've cut out 99% of buyers. A slab table is a five to $10,000 table. So how many people are going to spend that much money on that table versus something else? So if you want to think about the species that you have, what is it good for? Do some market research, find out what people are buying in your area and, and kind of target that. And some people manage to pull off just doing all kinds of whimsical, weird, crazy stuff. And that works for them. That hasn't worked for me, but I wouldn't want to dissuade people from trying out different things and, and find out what works. And then the problem is, is that most arborists don't know how to trim lumber in a lot of urban environments. They know how they're fantastic at their job. They're really good at safely yeah. getting dangerous, crazy, huge things out of a yard, I can't. I don't climb in trees. I don't mess around with that. That's a whole other can of worms. That's dangerous work. It's exciting, but it's dangerous. But they're not making a product. So I think a lot of arborists don't think of like this saw log as a product. If I want some of the wanna, I need to do something that they wanna have. They're like, I wanna get rid of this. I know there's money in that. And I would hope that someone would give me a whole bunch of money or would come do this. So I think. For the people I know that are trimming logs correctly, that have kind of figured that out, then Mills can say, yes, you're bringing me something that I want to have. So suddenly that goes from being a problem to being an opportunity. Right. So trimming logs to the right lengths is really important. If you're moving stuff on a log truck, you can leave things double lengths. So like instead of like an eight and a half foot log, you can cut 17 so the truck can pick it up, put it on there. But if you're not trimming logs correctly, then it's not a thing. Have a tape measure in your truck. If you want to do this, you want someone to take it. If you don't have a tape measure, then you're not doing anything. That's not a product. That's a problem. Speaking of tape measures, and by the way, thank you for all this practical information. My hope is that a lot of my arborist listeners are, are taking this into account and maybe even kicking it over to an entrepreneur. But talk about diameter, because here again, I'm thinking of the stuff that comes in and it's huge. You know, it's 36, 38, 42 inches in diameter. And if I'm correct, and you can advise us, the bandsaws do have a maximum diameter that they're able to handle. Is that right? There are different mills that can handle different size logs. The, the mill that I have has a 34-inch throat capacity. Throat capacity just means from one blade guide to the other, that's like the width that I can, the maximum width that I can cut is 34 inches. Yeah. In reality, I can mill a 36-inch diameter log on there, but it, it takes some skill and some doing. And with bigger logs, I, I'll take logs as big as they are and the species I want if they're nice logs. I have an 880 chainsaw with a 41-inch bar, and I have a 59-inch bar, and I just climb on top of it, and I just rip it in half. So is that what okay. I want to be doing all day? No. <laughs> but it, uh, it it works fine, and then I can get good wood out of that. So anything that's bigger, it's just you can cut it in half. I think sometimes people overthink that. They're like, oh, my God, I can't mill this on my mill. What would I do? So then uh, you can just break it down into smaller pieces so it can fit on your mill. And, and then you cut the log in half. If it's still too big, then you can cut that into quarters and then you can put one of the quarters on there. I personally, as I mentioned earlier, like I'll take big stuff and I'll take logs down to 12 inch diameter. I've milled stuff at eight inch diameter if it's super straight and it's good. Like I've managed to get a six inch wide board out of it. So a lot of it as a mill owner is understanding i sort my logs by diameter so all of my bigger nicer logs that have less defects i'm going to mill that and turn that into eight quarter lumber so i want to back up i'm talking about hardwood logs that are going to go for furniture and instrument wood and high value things lower grade stuff could go to flooring hardwood logs can also go for pallet stock for like i don't know you're back in pennsylvania there's pennsylvania bluestone back there so uh, they, I think they use oak and maple for their um, building their their pallets. So I'm going to take my bigger, nicer logs, and I'm going to put those into a log deck, and then I'm going to make up units of eight-quarter or two-inch thick boards that are really nice, and that's going to go to furniture makers for like a table, tabletops or a really nice credenza. I'm going to take all of my smaller logs, and I'm going to cut that into four or five-quarter, like 
thinner boards, and that's all going to be used for flooring blanks or character-grade stuff. You could still build lots of nice things out of it. And there, there is a market for high-grade, thinner material. But if you sort your logs by diameter and by grade and by length, then I'm able to, like, I've got accumulated enough of X that I can make it into a unit. My units are like 500 board feet. They're 30 inches tall, 43 inches wide. That way I can fit two units side by side on my truck easily. So I kind of have very modular things about how I fit everything together. It's the same as, as from an arborist perspective, you've got a truck, right? You've got a box in there. How are you going to put your chainsaws in there? How are you going to put your claiming gear in there? Where are you going to put your helmets? Like if you just throw it all in there and then try and get it out, it's going to take an extra 20 minutes every day and then stuff's going to be broken. The saws, the chain's not sharp and right. So in the same way with my business, I, I'm pretty OCD about every step being repeatable and clean and organized and easy to look at everything. Diameter-wise, I think the biggest thing is, is encouraging people to realize like you can use a lot more wood than you think you can. And in that way, if you're able to get go show up, you can get more material so it makes it worthwhile instead of picking up one log. So if I'm milling, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 board feet a day, and I'm going to spend four to six hours to go get a log that has 200 board feet in it, that doesn't really pencil. So I think that's the thing that you, you over time, you kind of realize, like, when I started, absolutely. If there was a nice log and it was one great log, I'd drive across town. I'd spend an hour or two wrangling it onto a trailer with a winch, and then I would mill it in an hour. So I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, if I'm going to spend more time on that than I am on milling, then I'm not actually producing enough lumber where I'm going to have cash flow in the future. So as an arborist and as a person who trains arborists, I would want to have a list from a person like you that would be handed to somebody and say, or I could teach in the classroom, I'd say, okay, as an arborist, if you're taking these trees down, here are standards to look at, to measure, to cut for your, your pickups, your log pickups. Yeah. And if you have something like that, again, a standard that you can give to somebody then your local area that this is what the mills will take, this is what the mills are looking for, then it makes my life as a trainer easier but it yes. also makes the person on the truck that's taking the tree down much more comfortable with knowing how to mark the tree. And they can actually mark it right there before they even cut it, measure it out, and then have everything all ready to go so that it becomes more of a puzzle. You're taking a puzzle apart rather than putting a puzzle together. <laughs> that, is a, that is a great point. So it's a little early for me, but I'll shamelessly promote that I am writing a book called Wood from the City, the Urban Lumber Handbook. And so that has all of this information in there and gives people a way to think about that you can't cover in a one hour podcast, but like the whole process of like, there's a tree that we cut down. Here's some logs. How do we trim these logs? How do we do all these things? The, the first clue that, I, that I'm saying is trim logs, eight foot six, 10 foot six, 12 foot six. You're probably going to find people that want logs and those lengths. You can also call the mill and say, well, what do you need? So they're going to be able to tell you, well, actually, we want it in this length or we want it longer. And so different places are all going to have their specific specifications. Some people are going to want crotch figure in the boards, other people not so much. And again, I think the main point is, is picking up the phone, sending an email, asking people what they want, not just randomly driving over with something that they say, hey, we don't take that. And then you being mad that they're not solving your problem. I think, I think a I've lot been that guy. Oh yeah, everybody has. I mean, that goes back to the point that I was making is not, not necessarily as a co-op, but as a, yeah. as a group of people who know each other, you have to have some kind of standard and yeah. not to be able to turn my friend Hal away because he cut it wrong. <laughs> um, I want Hal to cut it right in the field yeah. and then bring it to me so that I could use it and use it well for my clients. And so for me, I have that going on now. I have people, I, there's a arborist I work with, Zach's Tree Service, Zach is super OCD about it. He has a logger's tape. He does some commercial felling once in a while. Like if he climbs does a dug fur removal and he's in that tree or he has somebody in the tree, they have a logger's tape and they're sticking that tape from the top cut when they made their first pick with a crane or they drop it on the ground. And he knows the lengths that are going to go on a tray. He knows like, I'm going to cut 17s, I'm going to cut 20s, I'm going to cut 25s, 32s, 40s if there's full lengths. And he trims everything. And I love working with Zach because he understands what people want. So if you don't know, 
call, call some places, ask them what they want, bring some stuff over there. And I'll be like, Hey, they, they may or may not articulate very well, but you do it a few times and you, you keep at it. So on my website, I specifically say that those are the links I'm looking for. I think somebody read that and then trimmed a bunch of long logs and the short logs for me. And I was like, man, I, I, so I need to add, like, if you can get a log truck to the site and they can pick up more wood, then try and leave stuff longer. If you're not sure and somebody will come trim it themselves, ask them if they'll do that. When I started, I wasn't as comfortable using a chainsaw. So I tried to get the arborist to cut it. Now I have like a spot on my truck and I bring a chainsaw, I bring, or I bring two chainsaws with me. And I do all that myself because I just want to have control over that. And I, don't want people to do things incorrectly. Because again, the success of a sawmill business starts in a log deck. And if you can't get good material to the right lengths, then think about it this way. Imagine that you have a tree service and your chainsaws and your chain and your bars are one of the most important things you need. You have to uh, drive across town to get unsharpened chain from somebody's garage. But if you want a bar, you gotta go an hour the opposite direction. And somebody over here has four chainsaws, but two of them are broken. They need a spark plug. They need new stuff in there. Could you run your business that way? You couldn't. And so what a lot of people don't understand is when you call me and say, I've got these logs. I don't know what they are. They're laying here. That's not a thing. Now, if it's black walnut and it's long, I'm going to come over there and I can fix that and make sense of it. And I'll even might bring equipment but I'm not going to want to pay you for it if I have to come do all the work. So if you have a product, then you have a thing. If you don't have a product, and a lot of that, again, is like, even if there isn't like specification for you as a trainer, pick up the phone, find five or 10 people, start making phone calls, hustle. And some people do that and they get the rewards of that. There's another company out here, Trees by Joe. Joe has a self-loader. He can deck, he can bunk 13 foot lengths. And then if he has a couple of longer logs and he can put shorter stuff on top of it, he knows where all the pulp mills are. He knows where the regular mills are. And he can do a job. He's competitive price-wise, and he can make stuff go away. But again, there's no no risk, no reward. And and I think a lot of arborists, are, they're just trying to get on to the next job because it's really hard work. Yeah. And they're like, I want to just get this done. Even with my sawmill business, when I started, I used to mill all kinds of things that were wacky. I would just put stuff in my lumber stacks. And then you find out three years later or a year later or whenever you sort it like, why did I, why do I have this? This should have just gone into the firewood bundle. And I just kiln dried 23,000 board feet. It, a lot of it was the first stuff I milled. I pulled out, I put 3,000 board feet of material into firewood bundles. Someone will be really happy because it's kiln dried. It'll burn easily. But now I pre-grade every board that comes off the mill. I don't have a, I have roller tables set up. I have it all marked so I know all my lengths. Like, oh, this is a 12-foot board. I can get an 8-foot out of it. There's checking, there's defects. I chop it up. I can't get a full 8-foot. I'm going to chop it into a 4-foot board. So I'm pre-grading all of my stack. And it took me a long time to understand that you have to do the work up front. But at the other end of that, now when I dry a unit of wood and I go to plane it and sell it, every board in there is a winner. Everything is something that it will have a home because I'm doing all that work up front. So from a tree service standpoint, it's the same thing. You got to figure out what will make this give somebody an incentive to come get it or do you have someone that can move it or can you move it? And what does that person, the next person in the system want to have? And what I was going to say is that, you know, you have gone through all your trials and tribulations and you're yes. writing this book to share with other people. And that information is invaluable to someone who's an arborist who is going to be taking down those trees because they don't have the same perspective or knowledge that you do. So that now that you're imparting it and I could actually, as a trainer, go in and say, you know what, this is what you need to do if you're taking trees down, because not everybody take, takes trees down. I'm not a climber and I'm not, I'm yeah. not a, a takedown person. I'm a trainer. That's what I do and that's what I do best. And I'll say, okay, well, then this is what you can do to expedite the wood that you're taking down, the tree that you're yeah. taking down. Here's the formula or here's the people you can call or here's a list or here's a book of everyone who handles wood in our region. You know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. I was putting something like that together for somebody just recently for a project. And, you know, I found out a lot. I found out yes. I had no idea that there were this many people that were doing these things. 
So that to me is, is invaluable as a trainer, but also uh, to help you as a, as a Sawyer to be able to do what you do and do what you do best with the knowledge that you've gained from all your trials and tribulations. So on my website, I have a got logs page. I also have a custom milling page. And so I have stuff on there and I have for people who want me to build wood for them. I, I have like some terms and conditions that kind of like, here's things that I'm responsible for. Here's things I'm not responsible for. Here's how this is going to go. On the got logs page, I have a list of species I'm looking for. And then I think the other thing too is the, the, the nuance in all this is there might be a time when someone says, yeah, I need all of that I can get. If you have uh, honey locust, yeah, I have a market for that. Maybe that company that they're selling to goes out of business and suddenly they're like, yeah, I'm liquidating it. I don't have any more. And the reality is, is it's not like there's a formula and you follow the formula, everything's going to work out and it's going to be great every time. And I think that's just the reality of life and of running a business in general is that sometimes there's an opportunity, other times there's not an opportunity. And just trying to do things over time, that's when you start to just intuitively understand when this is a good idea and when it's not a good idea. I had an arborist I worked with a lot over the years. I used to go, I'd get anything. And he texted me yesterday with a big leaf maple that's on the side of a house on a steep slope. And he was like, this is a cool log. And I was like, A, I knew that that was just a nice, pleasant maple log. It didn't have curl and burl in it that he thought it did. And it was on a steep slope by a house. And I, I was just like, it's firewood. I'm not going to spend four hours to get one log off the side of a house where it could roll into the house and damage it and, and do stuff. Now, I, six, five, six years ago, I would have said, I'm going to drop what I'm doing, which actually could make money. I'm going to race over there and I'm going to help you get that out of there. And it, I think if you talk to a lot of other people that are doing what I'm doing, they may not be as particular about a lot of the things I'm saying. But my feeling is if we're trying to save these billions of dollars of potential lumber, then we should be efficient and we should focus on the things that the low hanging fruit. When is this going to be good? And so like, I don't want to get garbage logs with rotten holes in it filled with metal that I end up throwing half of it in the burn pile. I want to get something that's nice that I can mill and that can turn, be turned into something good. Not just because it's a business and it needs to be profitable, but because there's limited time in the day and we should focus on the opportunities where we can have an opportunity. I would encourage people like focus on the things where it's easy enough to get to or it's has enough value and let's focus on those logs and those tree removals instead of something that we're going to fill with epoxy that we're going to sell for no money. Because at the end of the day, my customers, they're not coming to me asking for weird boards with voids and defects. And even the companies that want to do sustainable forestry and urban lumber, like they need something that they can build that's not going to check and move and split apart. And they're going to spend hours and hours filling voids, you know, with epoxy or doing extra work. They want something usable. So that's where standardization, which you've asked, is so, so important. It's such an important uh, thing. We've covered a lot of ground. I really want to thank you for your time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book? And then if you could tell us your favorite tree. Okay. All good questions. Yes. So the book I'm writing is called Wood from the City, the Urban Lumber Handbook. I started working on the idea of a book in 2015. I uh, wrote uh, some book proposals then and sent them out and Shopped around, got a couple of bites for a few publishers, but I felt that I could make a better book if I self-published because I just had control of the content. And I'm a nerd for stuff like that. I like managing projects. And so I did decide to self-publish at a Kickstarter last year. The Kickstarter page is the best place to, to find information about the book. It's broken down into three sections. The first chapter is about wood products today. What is industrial forestry? Where, does, where do logs come from? How do they get turned into something at the large industrial scale? Yeah. The middle part of the book is what we've kind of mostly focused on today is there's all this wood coming down. What are we going to do with it? What are the steps and processes, the nuts and bolts of that? And how does that work to take something and turn it into a finished building material from tree to table, I guess you say. And then the last part of the book is how do we intentionally grow trees for lumber in cities? So we go from the system of today, which is cool and interesting and super fun, but not necessarily very efficient. Um, although we could make a lot of improvements to make it better, how do we go from that into something where we're actually planting trees at scale? And instead of maybe logging along a salmon stream in the middle of nowhere, maybe that tree came from down the road from you. So we can actually 
grow a lot of resources in and around cities. There's a very last chapter that I get into about just the economics of urban forestry. So that would be talking about if you have a business, if you work in government or you work for a nonprofit and you want to work on these issues around urban lumber and urban forestry and those different ways to think about how to improve the system. Because I think sometimes from a systems point of view, people get really confused about what kind of organizational structure you're using and what you're trying to do and trying to match the right skill set of that organization. Like what does a nonprofit do? What does the government do? What does the business do? And how do those things all work together? So as far as like my published date, I'm Hoping early next year, I'll be sending everything finished to, to get printed. I'm super excited about it. I, I, I do feel really passionate about the subject, and I, I think it's going to yeah. help inform a lot of people in a way that they can marinate on something and start to think about the whole system of trees and cities. The good news is if we think about the lumber portion of that, it has a lot of other great benefits. So if you're pruning trees while they're young and taking care of it, you're cutting out defects for trees. So hazard situations go away. Now you have a way to pay for a lot of this planting. I think that's a real problem in urban forestry is like, we have all these things we want to do. How do we pay for this? And I think being able to kind of think about the end of the life cycle of the tree, and if there actually is a revenue piece in there, allows us to do a lot of these other things that have really stymied a lot of success and increasing tree canopy. Because you can talk about public health and environmental benefits all day long, and people love the idea of that. But if you're like, this is going to cost X amount of money to do this, you're not getting cancer right now from not planting trees. You know, people are very good about, like, there's a fire, we need to put it out. But if it's a, a potential threat, but it's something that's slow moving, people aren't always motivated to take care of that. So I think like trying to think about different incentives to get people to have better relationships with trees, plant more trees. So that's kind of the ethos of the book. And your favorite tree. Man, that's that's tough. I'm going to say I think Oregon white oak is a phenomenal tree. It's an unsung tree in the state of Oregon, the Willamette Valley, which kind of just south of Portland. If you drink Oregon wine, probably came from there. That whole area was a giant oak forest. Uh, people think of Doug Fern Cedar and they think of the Pacific Northwest, but we have mm. all different kinds of ecosystems. And agriculture has really hammered those forests. There aren't protections for them. You can cut down old trees and they're considered a nuisance, assuming it's not in like a riparian area. And it's a phenomenal wood. It's a phenomenal tree. It has its own ecosystems, its own animals that depend on that tree. It was also the Lama Valley was kind of the lungs of the salmon fishery for Oregon. And so uh, I'm going to say uh, Oregon white oak uh, today. Very but cool. man, I've got hundreds of trees that I love. So I, I, And I, you're allowed to change your opinion. You're allowed to change your mind. You don't have a favorite child, right? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> So both my kids, they're both, they're, yeah. It's your favorite when you're standing in front of it. <laughs> yeah, actually, the good news is I, lo I love both my kids. They're both, they're both great kids. So That's I'm, awesome. I'm proud of that. so, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great talking with you, David. Keep on doing your good work. Yep. We look forward to hearing about your book. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, David. Take care. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank mm -hmm. you.